You're listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Dane. Welcome to another episode of Reach Teach Talk. The theme today is about tribes. And the word tribe is actually, it's got an interesting kind of connotation in today's modern society. I mean, we tend to think about tribes in a negative light. At least the media spins tribes as, you know, what tribe are you from? What's your identity? What's your political affiliation? What's your view on XYZ, religion, whatnot? Something very personal. And and people are easily bifurcated into a tribe and and in a way that is actually, I would argue, very not constructive, right? It's it's the idea of you are part of a category and I'm going to view you in this conformist view, this conformist type of tribe, this this people, this group. And there's going to be, therefore, there's an in-group and there's an out-group. And, you know, as media makes money on conflict and based on confrontation, then it isn't that convenient to divide people up into your group A, your group B, your tribe A, your tribe B. However, we're going to flip that on its head because I have an amazing guest today, Dr. Lou Cozzolino, who is here from Pepperdine. He's a professor of uh, psychology, and he works in, at the university level, and he works with teachers, and he works with others. He's also a therapist himself, and he wrote a book. Okay, so I'm just going to tell a little story here. I was flying back from London, um, back from London to Boston, where I grew up, and I was on the plane, and I, I grabbed this book, and I started reading it. And with education books or with psychology books or even self-help books, it's it's rare that I would not put a book down. And during the whole six hours of this flight, I read this entire book cover to cover. And I would recommend this book to any teacher, to anybody who's – even any parent, anybody who's interested in learning about how the brain and the emotions connect. But more than that, not just – you know, you've heard me talk in previous episodes that learning is cognitive and emotional, but it's also social. And what Dr. Cozzolino has been able to – to impart in his book as his main tenet is the social interaction of, of human beings, and in his case, in this book, in the classroom, but also in life, is absolutely connects to the way we open our hearts, open our emotions, and open our minds to learning. And Dr. Cozzolino, um, I want to say you coined the term, and we'll get to whether you did or not, uh, tribal classroom, which is this idea of being part of a tribe in the classroom and in a positive way. Like this is a very positive thing because when you're part of a tribe, you're part of a safe, secure, stable environment ethos. And I'll let Dr. Cosolino kind of go deep into what this does to the neurology, the, the neuropathways, the neuroscience of learning. And But another reason why I couldn't put this book down in the six-hour flight is because it, it made me reflect back to my time being a camp counselor, Camp Beckett in Massachusetts in the Berkshires, long time ago now, but when I was a camper there and also when I was a counselor, I, I didn't have a word. I didn't, we didn't use the word tribe to define what our cabin group was, um, to define what our camp ethos was, but we did have that sense of belongingness and a sense of security and a sense of, you know, I can try things and grow in an environment where we have the eight mottos, right, and we've got the identity that comes with being a member of Camp Beckett, and it was that idea that resonated in the back of my head when I was reading Dr. Cozzolino's book, The Social Neuroscience of Education. This book is available on Amazon. It's available everywhere. It is such an, it's also an easy read. It's, 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 it's definitely a book that, you know, as I said earlier, so often education science books can get kind of dry and get kind of lost in the weeds. This book does not. It is a beautifully written book, and it is a book that is palatable, 
to any reader who's interested in education, in child development, in parenting, in teaching. So that intro is all to say welcome, Dr. Cozzolino, Lou Cozzolino. Thank you. And I'm just so thrilled to have you here today because and to do a deep dive into the concept of the tribal classroom and also to hear your thoughts about my opening here too. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts about how tribe is looked at today and and what does on a, on a cognitive level on a developmental level what does being part of a tribe do um for to impact learning and to impact growth just in general mm-hmm. so i'll kind of give you that freewheeling question right now just in very broad but just yeah. to get to know you better as we begin this conversation sure sure thank you um yeah, thanks for having me um I, I think you have to go back you have to um you can't look at the the situation of education from the present day. I think it, what I do, at least, is to go back really to the evolutionary context that shaped our brains. So we lived for millions of years, at least hundreds of thousands, of probably millions of years, <clears throat> in tribes of 75 to 150 people. And in a sense, what happened during that time was that human beings, uh, you know, continued the the trajectory of other primates because other primates are very social as well. But we became more and more deeply um, shaped. Our brains, our bodies, our minds were shaped into social um, organs. And, you know, using the analogy of a neuron, say our brain consists of uh, multiple or, you know, billions of neurons, but many neurons that can't survive alone, that stimulate each other and work together to survive. And so nature evolution did this really interesting thing, um, took, a, uh, took animals, individual organisms, and wove them into larger superorganisms, which are, you know, you see this in beehives and, you know, termite mounds and uh, elephant troops and a million different examples, but wove our minds to not only uh, enhance our own survival, but simultaneously enhance the survival of the group. So humans are of two minds, right? We're of the mind, and this is sort of Freud's basic insight. We've got the, you know, the id, and we've got the superego. So inside of us, we have our own needs, and then we have the internalized needs of other people. And that's how we evolved biologically, to, and that's what laws and morals and ethics are about. It's about navigating those two poles of our existence. Um, and so when you, th- you, you think about... Um, how how we learned and who we learned from for hundreds of thousands of years at least we learned from people who who were related to who loved us who we loved and whose survival we depended on and whose and the teacher's survival depended on the student because the student would grow and the teachers would grow old and it would be the students that would have to take care of them so it was this ongoing sort of flow of energy and information and life, bio, you know, biological life force. So when I think about education now, I think about, you know, when you um, sort of have institutional education, which is kind of, from my perspective, a sort of oxymoron because we didn't really evolve to learn in institutions, right? Institutions are based more on um, Henry Ford's model of mass production. So they assume you know, similar material, raw materials, similar output, you can brick, none of those things work when it comes to people, right? You can try to make it work, but as you see, it, it works less and less depending on the resources and the, and the security and the well-being of the students in the system, right? 
And so, yes, the, you know, the system works well for privileged people. Sometimes, not all the time, all right? Still, it only works for, you know, a certain percentage of people. But the system works, the educational system works less and less for people who have less of a vested interest in the, the rewards of the culture and have like less access to them and have less resources at home, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm getting the sense here that, that what you're leading to is a definition of tribe as um, not having, not, not necessarily being this conformist. Like, you know, when I, when I started talking about this, I was thinking about mm-hmm. conformity and thinking about kind of that and identity, you know, like, like um, uh, similarities. But what you just said, it's a shared sense of reward, a shared, almost like goal-oriented uh, mindset, a well, shared goal. Is that, is that well, the foundation of it has been survival. Right. Right. And and so that really is what's driving it. I think we you know people. If you look at if you look at tribes for the last for recorded history, how long it like back to the Sumerians, maybe six thousand BC. Mm-hmm. What we see is that our history is just a series of tribal warfare. You know, it's, it's uh, tribal wars, uh, you know, ho- the genocides, uh, you know, and it's still going on. So we're still in the middle of that level of evolution. So the tr- uh, tribe is really a level of organization of biological survival, yeah. right? Or biological complexity maybe is a better way to put it. And so that's how I look at it. I'm not looking at, you know, um, you're in a different tribe than I am. You and I, like say we work together, we're starting a company, we could create a tribal mentality, which is what I'm talking about. It's, it, it's, it's leveraging the biochemistry of plasticity and learning and well-being and um, inserting those principles into any group. And it's the, it's in, it's, it could be, ran- and it also think about, think about um, animals and you know, humans and dogs. They develop a synergy. They can form tribes together. So it isn't necessarily ingrat. It's a principle. It's kind of like thinking of an alpha, you know, the alpha male or the alpha female, whatever it is. In our culture, we think about that as the gorilla, you know, in the room or someone who beats everyone up. But an alpha is an organizing principle of a group, right? Yes. And let's talk about who, who organizes these groups. Um, mm-hmm. you t- the, the tr- who's the leader of a tribe? What, de- what defines a tribal leader? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's different if it depends on where you are in history. Like if you're looking at tribes over the last few thousand years, at least in human tribes, what you have is sort of the, the biggest, baddest, meanest, most dishonest male, usually, right? right? Um, hence, you know, it, we don't have to look far to find it these days, <laughs> right? right? Um, and, but I think that if you, if you go back into subsistence cultures yeah. and agricultural cultures, um, where survival wasn't based so much, maybe there weren't any natural, you know, uh, there weren't any natural enemies in the environment. They were much more uh, collaborative. Um, I mean, actually, the principles of, you know, when you, when you read feminist philosophy and feminist leadership principles, it's more that it's more of a flat, you know, flat structure where people are, um, everyone is valuable because people aren't disposable. You don't have a huge workforce to choose from. You have everyone around you who you're related to and you gotta find something for everyone to do. <laughs> so their strengths are amplified, their weaknesses are worked around. So there's their you know, workaround is a big part of this. You know? And um, you, create, you create an environment where everyone feels invested, um, like they're benefiting from it and a respected member of the tribe. 
Yes. So, right. so, so an ideal tribal um, group would have, you need a tribal leader, you need, you need a leader, but it's otherwise non-hierarchical. And those who mm-hmm. assume the leadership roles are not lauding their power. It's not about power. It's about bringing out, in a sense, I'm sensing a lot of positivity in what you're saying here, Lou, because yeah. it's focused on the positive. We, coming together, we can bring out, utilize our, our most, our strongest assets as individuals toward the collective with a shared goal. Is, is that right? You're right, right. I mean, the leader in, you know, if, uh, Jared Diamond, uh, if you know, he's a professor at UCLA, yeah. Yeah. written, uh, he run, won the Pulitzer for Guns, Germs, and Steel, but he wrote a wonderful book called The World Until Yesterday, which really describes his, um, you know, his experience with the tribes in Papua New Guinea. And, uh, you know, he just talked about how, you know, the gaining, gaining authority and gaining power over what you have to offer. It's kind of... Maybe it goes back to Greek philosophy, you know. Maybe um, like Plato, this notion of um, of the the servant leader, that sort of thing, um, you know. And it's existed at different stages of culture, but you know, in a subsistence tribe, you can't tolerate. There isn't there isn't a lot of extra to tolerate someone who is flamboyant and megalomaniacal or all of that stuff. You know, someone just takes care of them because they know it's damaging to the tribe. So leadership is an organizing principle, and it organizes based on the resources and, you know, the needs of the community. Wow. You know? I mean, we're living in a time where we are witnessing the opposite of what you're talking about, of what you're describing here, you know, authoritarian leadership, um, mm-hmm. power, top-down power, whether mm-hmm. in a private sector or in political, obviously in global politics. Yeah. And what you're talking about is so hope-filled in a sense, too. It's we can survive together without that, without mm. that oppression, without that. And it's also eliminating fear, right? In, in mm-hmm. any sort of society that's based on authoritarian rule, fear is the guiding principle, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? It's a, it's a mechanism of control. Me- yeah. Which doesn't exist in an optimal tribal community. No, the, the tribal community, it's based on, um, can I say, expectations, responsibility, and fulfilling your agreements because everyone depends on you to do what it is you're supposed to do. You can't hide at any kind of corporation where you can steal billions of dollars and then declare bankruptcy. Right. There's, there, are no, there are no shields between you and accountability. Right. And, um, and that's the, you know, when um, think about someone uh, like a heroic teacher from my perspective, like Jaime Escalante, who taught in Los Angeles years ago. Um, he just, he made everyone aware that everyone was counting on them to be part of the group, and if they didn't show up, he went to their house, he found them, and brought them in. And so there's this sense of being, there's a lot of responsibility, but there's also a lot of, um, there's responsibility, accountability, but also commitment by the group to you. And I think that's really what most people, what I see suffer from now, most people just feel alone in the world. You're, you're tapping into a theme, a constant theme, I think, in these podcasts, yeah, which is yeah. this loneliness epidemic. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking about the word social contract when you were talking, mm-hmm. um, when you were speaking a moment ago, and this idea of a tribe, of belongingness in a tribe as as agreeing to a social contract, as mm-hmm. being um, leaning into a social, a, a social contract. And by that, I'm talking about just we are broader than our own individual needs. Yeah. And so much loneliness actually... You know, you can be super successful and affluent and have made, you know, tons of money and living at the top of the hill, but lonely is all hell because right. you're not part of anything relationally. Mm-hmm. You're not, you don't have right. relationships and connection with others. And mm-hmm. um, maybe you can speak a little to that distinct distinction between living a life of, of connection with a common purpose versus living a life on your own. Mm-hmm. 
as an individual. Well, there's, um, you know, along with the with the evolution of of us as social animals, um, where we've we've evolved into really we're very similar to neurons in the sense that if neurons aren't um, stimulated, they die, right? They can't live alone. There's no such thing as an individual neuron in, in nature. And I think that we've evolved to, to be sustained and thrive by being energized by other people and being connected and all of that. And of course, it's a, you know, there's a huge variability. You know, some people, like I would say that I'm relatively introverted but I can, you know, because that's just uh, disposition, who knows, biochemistry. Right. Um, but I know that I feel my best and my smartest when I'm giving to others and getting from others and being connected and all. And um, I remember, you know, with the sort of one of the, the foundational uh, stories from this book in my mind was I realized when I was in my 40s or 50s that when I was in school, I only learned from the teachers that I loved and who I felt cared for me. And the rest of the time I was checked out, yes. you know, from stress and other things that were going on in my life. Um, but love turned my brain on. And so you look back into, you look at the neuroscience and you see um, brains are, have evolved to get activated through positive regard, you know, uh, attention, focus um, of other people and, uh, and being regarded as important and being given responsibilities. That's how we've evolved, you know. And I think our brains may have almost like a safety, a safety element or a safety catch in it where we don't learn from people we don't like. And that could have been also, you know, possibly an evolution where people who we didn't know and we didn't love, we were skeptical of and didn't pay attention to. It was almost like a filtration device or a gate yes. that kept us from learning. Yes. So you take, a, you take a traumatized minority inner city child who has to fight to get back and forth to school, how open do you think that gate is when you're sitting across from a teacher representing a, a system that has basically neglected him and his family and his people? Yes. You yeah. know? So yeah, again, I don't want to be, you know, wave too big a flag, but you just look at it, it's like what we see makes sense and you can't throw money at these problems. There aren't, you can't give iPods to everybody or, you know, or I do even have iPods. You have them anymore? iPads. I mean, <laughs> um, I, yeah, anything with an eye in front of it. Right, you can't right. just you can't just <laughs> spread thousands of them and drop them from helicopters. You know, human problems and human solutions. Absolutely. And that's what we're. And I think the internet is doing so much to separate us from one another and isolate people and isolate, especially kids. And I I fear the results of these. Uh, you know, of the technology because people are hungry for tribes, so they get it online via these social platforms, but what that but that doesn't give them any of the natural biological activation that you get in face-to-face -face and analog inter interactions. In the brain studies that, that show that, right? I mean, that, that, that show that the two of us talking in a shared space is different than the two of us, even if we had a Skype interview screen to screen, right? I think I'm, you know, I'm not familiar if there's, I mean, I would just, I would certainly bet that if they did research on this and it was, and if it was good research, they would find that there'd be different processes. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of overlap, but some things are missing and a lot of things we can't measure because a lot of stuff gets communicated across the social synapse that is, you know, uh, ephemeral, that's unconscious, that has to do with things that scientists don't even realize exist yet. Mm -hmm. Things that in our minds manifest as, you know, care or chemistry, intu um, uh, you know, intuition. We have all kinds of names for it. Mm -hmm. Paranormal, 
Sometimes mm -hmm. people call it clairvoyance. But there's all this information that's getting communicated that has yet to be, the channels of that communication have yet to be explored. So the teacher as a tribal teacher, a tribal leader in the classroom, in the tribal classroom, would be focusing on that, would be focusing on, the f or, or at least valuing in, in some way, um, defined or not defined in their own minds, a, a great relational teacher with a tribal classroom would be aware of the connectivity of all members of her class, and right? And, and so you would have not just the, you know, you brought the hypothetical student coming from disadvantaged background in the classroom and needing to find that connection with the teacher, that teacher believes in me, therefore I, I will work for her. Mm -hmm. Yet there's also this, this broader look or responsibility of the teacher to create a classroom where that kid, the student, also feels like I'm safe in this classroom and that teacher is responsible for creating a sense of tribe in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So how would it, so what would it, what would a, a, a um, flourishing tribal classroom look like? Or at least maybe you can share what you've seen in terms of when there's a, when there's a classroom that's going really well and that really feels cohesive and it has a shared goal and has a tribal focus, what's the feeling in the classroom and what, how do you gauge it? How do you know that this is, and this is an effective classroom or not? Well, I think that, you know, that everyone feels it. They may not be able to articulate it. They may just say it feels good here. I feel, you know, it feels like a family. That's something that a lot of people will say. People don't really use the word tribe. I think they tend to think of, you know, natives and loincloths and stuff. <laughs> I mean, I just use that term because I'm, you know, in reading the anthropology literature, that's just the term that's used, and it fits, really. Um, but, yeah, I think that's really the, the thing. It, if, uh, if I don't know if your listeners are even now familiar with Carl Rogers. Absolutely. Yeah, years ago he was visiting Cambridge when I was a student there. I got to spend a week with him, and it was, I think, in the uh, mid-'70s, so I was very much into the, 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 the fire and brimstone, you know, potential movement and, all of these weekends where you sort of beat people up and didn't let them pee and put them together <laughs> through all of these uh, these uh, trials and tribulations. And then I met Carl, and I was like aghast at, like, how could he be so famous? He's so calm. He's so soft. He's so accepting. You know, and by the end of the first day I spent with him, I wanted him to adopt me. Yeah. You know, he was able, he embodied the presence, you know, all of his principles of positive regard and support and empathy and yes. focus he made you feel seen and felt, right? And so I think that it's that basic principle that he stumbled onto. I, don't, I never heard him talk about neuroscience, and I don't think the data really existed back then. But, you know, he, has cre he created an, an orientation towards therapy, at least, that is an optimal condition for neuroplastic activation and the biochemistry of learning, right? And so... Of course, in a classroom, you're not having a one-on-one -on -one relation. You've got this, you've got a dilemma of it. Right. So you can't really, um, you can't spend eight hours a day with each kid. You've got to figure out some way to change the social dynamic in the classroom so that each of the kids in the classroom, each of the students can benefit from the existence of the other students. And so the, the, when, the way teachers, you know, going, but you asked me like five or six questions in one paragraph, so I'm trying to... Break it down. Take your time. So I was thinking, like, you know, what would be on a teacher's mind, you know? Because of course, the the pressures are get through the content, 
their tests are coming, they've got to, you know, go on. But I think one thing you've got to ask yourself the question is how well is that working for you? Mm -hmm. And it might be that in some neighborhoods, in some classes, in some schools, that works fine. And in other classes, you've got dropout rates of 50% or 60%. You know what I'm saying? So is it working? You might have a principle that you like to believe in, but based on results, does it seem to have any validity? Right. 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 And so, and I think when you when you look at the the heroic teachers that I've studied, they've always taken you know Marva Collins in Chicago. Yeah. She took she she got tired of teaching in the public schools, so she cleared out the top floor of her tenement building in uh, Chicago. Her husband went to Goodwill, bought a bunch of tables and desks, and started her own school. Right. And so it's it's sort of it's uh, teaching in the modern society. It's almost like a subversive activity when you're doing it with people that the system designed to be marginalized. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, why does it take so long to help these people? Yes. You know, why are there so many potholes in Compton and not in Beverly Hills? Right. Right? right. Why did it take so long to do research into the AIDS vaccines? Right. Right? right. All of that stuff. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, I don't know, I guess to some people it's a mystery. Yeah. But if you follow if you follow the money, you always find the answer, at least in my experience. Right. And so you've got these you've got these schools that aren't funded enough, that they don't have enough resources. And of course, the teachers get the crap beat out of them, part of my English. And so they get burnt out. Right. And then they end up like most of my teachers in high school. They have the little hip flask with a bottle in their desk drawer. Right. right? And they just needed a case of carton cigarettes. Yeah. (laughs) And they just needed to stay a little bit drunk all day to tolerate what was going on. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But yeah. not the teachers that really cared and the ones that I connected with. Or maybe it was the teachers that they cared so much, too, who were burning out. It like, could be, yeah. so much. Yeah. And, and they, they just leave the profession usually after right, a few years. Right, they walk Those away. are the people we need. Exactly. They yeah, are yeah. the ones who care, the 50% right. who leave after the first three to yeah. five years. But, but if I could just, I'm sorry, yeah. to, but it, what you asked me before, it's like, what should a teacher be thinking about, in a sense, how do you build a classroom? What you're being told is that the curriculum is important. And I think you have to do like a 360 or a figure ground switch, and you have to say, no, establishing the classroom as a tribe is what's important, and the curriculum will get sucked into the vacuum of the, of the enthusiasm and the interest that you create by creating that social, biological s- state yeah. in, in, the, in the students and in the teacher. Um, so I, that would be the first principle, you know, um, of, that I would say that, uh, that you need to think about. And I think that what happens is that teachers get frightened, maybe, or the administrators get frightened. We don't have time for this alternative agenda, but it's the alternative agenda that really makes certain classrooms uh, able to function. It's incredible that 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 that, that the connect connect you know building connection, building trust, um, communication, collaboration, all of that. Um, is looked at as an alternative, what do you call it, alternative, alternative agenda? agenda yeah. yeah, an alternative agenda. When it is, you're absolutely right. Like that is what excellent teachers do and relational right. teachers do. Yeah. And that's why my focus here on this podcast is to talk to very interesting right. people about how they build foster relationships right. uh, in their right. classrooms and, and their organizations. And, and this right. is absolutely central. Yeah. Um, and, you know, combining what you just defined as an optimal tribal classroom with what we were just talking about with the burnout rate and teaching, how about a tribal class a teacher? Um, you know, teachers need to belong to a tribe as well. And you, yeah. you definitely talk about this in your book. Mm-hmm. If you could uh, talk about that a little bit, too, because I think that there are quite a few listeners to this podcast who are teachers and who are, especially if they're listening to this podcast between January and March, 
really questioning, do I want to continue with this? I am feeling a sense of burnout and fatigue. But is it yeah. burnout, like career burnout, or is it just it's winter and it's, it's cold and it's dark? So, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get in the car and another cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. But, but what can you say? Because you do write about this and you do, you do talk about this um, in your book about the tribal teacher environment and, and, mm-hmm. and being part of a tribe as a group of colleagues yeah, yeah. and how important that is. Well, it's interesting because a, a, a student of mine named Megan Marcus, who helped me work on this book, um, started a company called Fuel Ed. And her organization um, is dedicated to uh, giving teachers what they need and then helping teachers have ways to connect with each other and support them, kind of to, you know, as a way to burn, to, to work against burnout. And in a sense, treating the teachers the way these principles in this book uh, would say they should treat their students. Because it's hard to ask someone to do something that no one's doing for them. You know, because generally when I meet with principals, they're more concerned with, you know, budgets and details of this, that, and the other thing. But very few, very few, um, especially in public schools, you get a little, the the, private schools have a little more, they've got the luxury to do that. Um, But uh, in in public schools, which I think, you know, by far the majority of the students are in, it, it, the, the context doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. But they're sort of steeped in this. They're, you know, they're suits, they're managers, they're, um, uh, they're looking at the bottom line and at numbers, and their job performance is based on test scores. Mm-hmm. And so they're afraid to invest in anything that doesn't, at least logically to them, seem to, direct, to connect to their metrics. Right, right. And they're not trying to, you know, hey, you know, they're trying to do their job, which, as you said, is so right. much more quantitative based and so much more deliverable based, right. um, you know, analytical versus what a teacher's doing. Yet, it, I was thinking while you were talking about the fact that, you know, just like a teacher to a student, a student's not going to thrive in a classroom unless, he, like, like you, you're saying, you know, that teacher that really worked well with you was, you knew, you sensed that that teacher believed in you. And I would imagine it's the same, uh, same you know, uh, situation when you when you're a teacher, and if you're a principal, your direct report does not know you, or does not believe in you, or convey belief in you. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're speaking a different language, and they don't know how to convey belief in you, or what to even look for when it comes to belief in your teaching skills. Then, how can you really function optimally right. in communicating belief to your own students? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and and and, the, and sort of the. The headmasters of private schools that I've met seem primarily concerned with fundraising, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the principals in public schools that I've met seem primarily, you know, try, they've got bosses they're trying to please. Exactly. And exactly. so the teachers are kind of left, they're stuck in a sense between administration, between what administration expects from them and what the students really need from them. Right. You know, and so they're in a real dilemma. So I think a lot of the burnout, I don't think it's getting up in the morning and working. I think it has to do with the, the demands, the, le- the, d- the level of demand and the level of unfulfilled need that they face every day, yes. you know, at work. Yeah, and you mentioned the word time as well, and mm-hmm. just this feeling of there's not enough time right. to be able, to, from the administrator's point of view, to be able to really connect and get to know my teachers and their teaching right. style and to be able to, you know, really honor what they do, and also the same thing with teachers feeling, my gosh, I've got all these different responsibilities, plus I've got to plan and execute my classes and give mm-hmm. feedback and work with the kids. Yeah. So it, it is that right. um, feeling right. all the time in schools. And another word you brought up, though, is love. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love for you to speak to that word as it pertains to teaching in the tribal classroom. Mm-hmm. If you can. Well, I think the, you know, the for mammals like we all are the the origin of relationship 
is uh, mother-child bonding, right? Which mm -hmm. then got extrapolated to males and got extrapolated to tribes and got extrapolated to, you know, soccer teams and, tr and nations and all the things that we feel a part of that are more abstract, mm -hmm. you know? But that core feeling, that core biochemistry of, you know, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin activation, and a few other things, right? Mm -hmm. um, the activation of those things is what makes us feel like we want to do something. We might love, you know, we might love uh, oil painting. We might love this. You might, you see your child, and you don't have to ask yourself whether you love them or not. You know it because your body, we're, we've, been, we've been shaped to have those feelings. And fortunately, it's, you know, it's been extrapolated to other things. Mm -hmm. So we don't spend too much time chasing our children to love them, like right. so they can grow up and do things right. on their own without us. Right. Um, but I think you know, that's the core of it. And I, I would guess that for every, for every teacher, it's hard for me to imagine the teacher taking the job for the money you know, or whatever. It, it seems to me like, the, at least the teachers I know, they love, they love kids. They love, they love teaching and they love the feeling of a student's eyes opening up to some new information or to the connection or the, the appreciation they receive, whatever it is. Or even the altruistic, uh, you know, sort of uh, taking care of or giving someone something um, without return, right? So I think that's why most teachers are attracted to the field. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there, there's always exceptions, but I would say that's probably the vast majority. Yes. Um, but what they run into is a system that doesn't appreciate their love, right? And I think that, you know, so the, the system, the industrial system, treats them like they're a replaceable part on an assembly line. Getting back to your Ford analogy from the beginning. Yeah, of the yeah. I mean, you can put, you know, like like now, it's almost like they're, you know, it's, it's like you, it used to be, you know, we can just, if you don't show up, we just get somebody else. Now it's if you don't show up, we just show them a video or we give or put a robot in front of the class. Right. So feeling disposable and expendable, I think, is part of, of it. Your love not being appreciated is part of it. Well, that's right. a, and th which is a very primal oh, yeah. feeling. This, mm -hmm. it's, it's like the uh, parents... Not you know a parent's a love toward a parent being rejected. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's interesting. I think a lot of when I think back to the, the the teachers that I connected with, a lot of them were, I mean they were they were all characters. They were none of them were sort of like the party line teachers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had uh, one of my professor, one of my teachers in high school, who was my uh, my uh, algebra teacher. He was just oh, you know he's just this. Little little guy who you know smoked cigars constantly. He drove a Cadillac. He had a Cadillac, and he had a, his, the trunk of the Cadillac was full of nylons, and he would sell them in the parking lot of the of the <laughs> temple down the street, what? right, to make some extra money, right. What? And he was just like the, I don't know if you know the term garmento, but there were these guys in Manhattan when I was a kid, and they were just always they always carried around giant scissors that you'd use to cut the fat, and if you mess with them, they'd come after you with these scissors. So they were just sort of it was it was sort of like the Kind of a just a real interesting character, but he, excuse me, he was the gruffest person, and I just loved him, and yes. he loved me, and it was like you know whenever I tell I knew whenever I saw his eyes would light up. Yes, right, because I yes. knew how much he loved math, and I didn't particularly love math before, but he loved it so much. I said maybe there's something here. Yeah, and I worked my ass off, and I remember I got a hundred uh, a perfect score on the New York State 
test, a regent's exam for this. And I saw him in the lobby, and he looked at me, and he put his arms out, you know. Never forget that. Yes. You know? And yes. so things like that, and there were other teachers as well, but yep. things like that. Um, and I think they're usually teachers that know that the system, there's just, like, all of the system is BS. I'm here because I want to connect with you or you, whoever's available to learn, and I'm going to give you everything I got. And that's a subversion of it. You mentioned yeah. teaching being a subversive yeah, yeah. Uh, vocation for those mm-hmm. who do it right, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because it is. It's like because the system as structured right. is not orientated toward, right. you know, that kind of connection yeah. and, and the opening of the heart in order to connect. And yeah. certainly it's not predicated on love right. in, the, in the definitions that you share about what a teacher's love really is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a guy, Mr. And a guy, I had a sixth grade teacher, Mr. Bradley, who was just majorly into history and he was amazing as a history teacher, but he was also a very gruff, he, was, he also coached me in hockey and mm-hmm. ice hockey and, uh, and he, he would throw racers. Mm-hmm. Right, oh, yeah. they'd hit you and he, explode, right? Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and usually, I'd be spacing out, and he'd hit me with a razor. Like, and and but he got away with that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I knew that he honored me. His first right. report card comment to me, I remember this so well. Lou. He, he he, I got a, it was a horrible report card. It was a C C C B plus B plus. And uh, I don't know what the subjects were, but it was you were a hockey player. You're not supposed to be yeah, right. And yeah. you got so many shots to the head. This sure. <laughs> <laughs> the concussions. We did wear helmets. You're right, but we didn't wear masks. Mm-hmm. Right, this is yeah. back in the early '80s. No, no masks. Um, but uh, but um, CCCB plus B plus, and and is one comment was one sentence. Don't rest on your laurels, Matt. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, eleven-year-old me, it was like, "What is Laurel?" That's so, right. of course, I looked it up when I got home. Right. I didn't even ask my dad. Laurel and Hardy. That's right. Like, yeah, I was thinking, it was like Laurel and Hardy, exactly. <laughs> but that kind of, but but you know, he threw erasers. He took yeah. my 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 shoe off and rolled down the window in the middle of a snowstorm and tossed it out. You know, because I I didn't wear it on my foot and it, mm-hmm. it just t- t- and I and he said, "Go get it." And I was, so, but it wasn't. You know, yeah. you hear stories like that today in, in passing. Of course, yeah. people are like, oh, my God, it's abusive. Yeah, oh yeah God, you get, you get your attorneys and, and he's fired and all right. of that stuff. But think about how uncles and fathers and people you were related to treat you. Right. That's Same how they thing. treat you. Yeah. That's how they treat you. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. It, it is, I mean, I do know. And based on this, this conversation, it's, you're helping crystallize so much of what, you know, the, these subversive teachers in their tribal classrooms um, do in order to create, to add to a flourishing learning environment. Mm-hmm. So you can have a kid coming from um, any any type of background, right? Stable, unstable, whatnot, and enter the classroom. And if that child has a sense, a feeling of, I, I'm comfortable, mm-hmm. you, I think you used the word comfort earlier, mm-hmm. then then that teacher's job is actually more than half, half six, Absolutely. You know, done. Because then you don't have to talk them into doing all the right. things they need to do. Then they right. do it because you've already created the, the sort of the social and biological context that makes them want to work. Yes, right? and work for themselves, right? Yeah. But also, if, if truly following the definition of a tribal classroom, it's working for, for the, in a sense, working hard so that yeah. you're, par- you're, you're pulling your weight, yeah. Yeah. Um, right? And it's not just to impress the tribal leader. Mm-hmm. It's, and in fact, it's in a, in a really healthy classroom. And I'm thinking about with older kids, you know, middle school or high school. It's, it doesn't have to be stated. Mm-hmm. Like my work effort is 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 helping others in the classroom. It's, it just is, mm-hmm. and you sense it. It's right. it's a it's a it's a sense, and that's why it can't be analyzed. I don't think a tribal classroom can be analyzed through con- quantitative metrics, really. No, I think it's a, it's something you have to measure by. I, I think the biggest the biggest measure of it is the differential or the de- by the delta between what you expect of people and what they end up coming at, coming through with 
or compare them to how they perform in other classes, yes. right? Because yeah. I think that's where you really you see success, where you know t- uh, students are deemed unteachable in and one section, in one, 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 one discipline, right? And then the what's and so then what's the truth? And that was something right. that you know when I was growing up, I saw that in in some classes I was just terrible, and the teachers would berate me. And so in those classes, I'd say, "Gee, I'm not that bright, you know, really not that smart a person." Right. And then other classes where I do well, and the teacher, you're brilliant, you're really. So then, who am I? Right. Right. And it breaks good. down that question of sort of a monolithic self, like I've got to make a decision about who I am. Yes. No, I'm a lot of things, and I'm a social being and a contextual being. Yes. So depending on who I'm with and where I am, I feel different and I act different. Yes. Right. You know? it, we, we're all chameleons yeah. that way. I mean, this, yeah. it, and that's a survival instinct. Yeah. Right? Well, but it's also the fact that we're so much more. The re, We have individual identities probably also because of tribal evolution. In other words, we each had to have one name and a responsibility and commitments and people had to hold us accountable for the tribe to survive. But the truth is, like if you ever travel to some foreign place and you're in an unknown land, you can be, you you discover all kinds of things about yourself that because you're not being held in context, right? You're making me think of the... um Yes, when you're when you're being viewed by mm-hmm. people who who've never known you before, this moment that they right. that they interacted with you, and you're yeah. in, by being a foreigner in a place, it, it makes mm-hmm. you more raw, and it makes me think about just the um, uh, handoff meetings that schools would have, like you know year to year, right? Um, most schools, the teachers who are receiving the files or the reports of the students from the teachers who taught them the year before, right? So it's just you know that, that it gets in discussions about the halo effect and about you know just what um, preconceived notions mm-hmm. like if you're a sibling if you had an older sibling and the same teacher t- teaches you and they're like oh yeah. you must be just like jimmy you know your yeah. older brother or something and you're not you're you're an individual yeah. so you're just getting me to think also about just the importance of um allowing for that growth but also i think also just the importance of looking at, at schools as it's not just in the classroom that a student a student's identity is shifted or reinforced or or um the opposite it's all parts of the school day. It's mm-hmm. an all. It, there's some many different adult eyes watching students, and um, and anyway, how that how that how that reflects on how a student feels about himself mm-hmm. or herself is is important to to consider too. Yeah, it's all. I think it's all important, and, and that's the thing. That probably the big one take home would be, the alternative agenda, is not an alternative, right? This you know developing relationships totally. and building the building the tribe, is not something that. You know, and again, maybe in some schools you can and still get the results you think you want. But um, in schools where kids are struggling, yes, then I don't, I don't think it's an alternative. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that every teacher who's teaching should be a teacher. Some right. people aren't cut out for it. Right, it right. doesn't mean every adolescent should be sitting in a classroom. Right. Some adolescents aren't there. Right. They need to be doing something else Their for five or six or years. Yeah, yeah and then if they if they need education later on, give it to them later on when absolutely. they can actually benefit from it. Yes. Um, so the the whole thing, the industrial, goes back to the mass production, right? Yes. We've got a model. We fund the model. And we use the model as the gold standard. And if you don't make it in the model, then there's something wrong with you. With you, and yes. you don't see you don't see the effects of culture, socioeconomic status, trauma, stress, you name it. And and the you know basically the mismatch right. between human beings and you know building microwaves. Right. Well, I think it's fortunate that today we have research, we have science, we have concrete data that is confirming what 
everything that we've we've instinctually good teachers have instinctually mm -hmm. sensed right. for a hundred years since the factory's model right. of education you know developed more than a hundred years now and I don't know about I don't know what your thoughts maybe you can leave us with some final thoughts about this do you sense that we are moving toward more recognition of the importance of the alternative um, mm -hmm. primacy of you know rela building relationships first and then the education will happen in a sense I mean my yeah, that's all I'm going to leave. Yeah, I think I'm. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it in private schools, right? Not all of them, but I'm seeing in you know the private schools that I deal with, and maybe I deal with them because of the fact that they're open to the types of stuff I'm talking about. So it could be a, a selection bias. Sure. But I think the um, you know there are people that recognize this, and they're and they're learning it, whether or not uh, it's going to it's going to exist at a broader level, like in public education, is is something I can't tell because forces seem to work in both directions simultaneously. You know, there's financial problems, there's this sort of regression into more authoritarianism, you know, with the, you know, with current, with politics and things that are going on. Um, and on the other hand, you know, there's more data with attachment, there's more recognition of the importance of education and teaching, you know, so that might be positive. A negative thing is that a lot of people are thinking, well, what do you need schools for? You've got YouTube now, and you can learn everything on YouTube. Um, and I teach at a school where they just put the master's program in psychology online. So people, don't, yeah, so people don't even have to come to school and interact with teachers at all. So there's a huge push for that economically, whether it's right. a good idea or not. Right. And, um, you know, it's been going on for a while now, and it's really hard for me to, you know, it's a rare student that graduates from my program where I feel confident that I could refer a client to them because I haven't, I don't see that they've really gotten enough training and education um, you know the the schools now are not schools; they're businesses, and the and the students are now customers. Wow! And so we can't really upset them or challenge them too much because they'll go to some other school. Right, right, right. right so right. that the standards keep getting low, lowered, the expectations keep getting lowered, and so the the truth is, I don't know. I mean, I I try to remain optimistic, mm -hmm. and I just effort in the direction of the things that, you know, if I see the opportunity to do something like, one of the things that I've resisted, but I think I'm. I'm sort of moving in that direction is almost being a sort of like a motivational speaker and a cheerleader for teachers Yes. to try to find those people, you know, like my student Megan did, you know, to find those people who, who need, who are motivated, who are interested, who need the help and just work, you know, one by one by one and get enough people out there yes. that, uh, who are good teachers because they will contact lots of students over their, over their, uh, you know, career if they don't quit and go into accounting or real estate. Right. And uh, so that's, I'm doing whatever little good I can. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully, I mean, it's certainly uh, plenty of people seem to have written this book. The problem with something called the social neuroscience of education is that most teachers and administrators are looking for books that have catchy, easy titles that have one principle you know, like Grit, for example, Mindset. or something like that. Yeah. And so you sell millions of those books, but the problem is it's just one little narrow piece yes. of a puzzle. It's not in context, and you can't really do much with it except make money if you sell the book. Right, right, right. You know? Well, that's why. I mean, I cannot, I cannot recommend this book enough. I mean, The Social Neuroscience of Education, you're absolutely right. If it was called something like, you know, Subversive Teaching mm -hmm. um, or something. Or Sex in the Afternoon. Like, <laughs> 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 that, that would sell millions. Well, yeah. Actually, probably not be good to see that book on a teacher's desk <laughs> or in a principal's, uh, you know, bookshelf, right? Well, it, it, it would be it, in the drawers. It would be in the drawers, along with the, uh, the vodka, the, 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 right. the, 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 the shots, the, mm -hmm. the scotch whiskey. Um, 
Dr. Cozzolino, Lou, thank you very, very much for this. My I mean, pleasure. I just I feel like we we covered everything I was hoping to and much more because mm-hmm. this this broadening conversation it's really connected to so many things, so many themes of, of previous podcasts that I've had actually. Mm-hmm. Loneliness epidemic, the social contract, the need for connection, yeah. putting feelings first, um, belongingness, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the individual and the, yeah. the group. And you've been able to sum it all together through this discussion and through your work. And I'm just so grateful for your insights. And, and you are a cheerleader for teachers. I mean, I you know, try, yeah. you, you, you are. And, and I'm just so I'm just so grateful to, to have mm. gotten to know you. And you. I'm so grateful for the – I can't remember who the teacher was or the school person was who put this book in my hands. Mm. But I'm so grateful for that flight and for the six hours and the easeability of the read and, and for what this has generated in mm-hmm. terms of firing me up. Um, as an advocate for teachers and excellent relational teaching. Good. So thank you very much for being here My today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. You've been listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Damon. If you'd like to recommend a guest for a future episode, you can send your suggestion or questions to nat at reachacademics.com. <laughs>